0: This is the Wednesday talk of the 2024 Pari Nirvana Sashin. Happy Valentine's Day to those of you who celebrate. Taking refuge is something the Buddha instructed his followers to do as he was dying. I want to talk a little bit about this, the Buddha's advice to his followers before his death around taking refuge. And I would like to unpack the second of our five invitations from Frank Ostaseski, welcome everything, push away nothing. And some ways we might do this. And doing so, truly preparing for our deaths and living our lives fully. And I want to share an inspiring story about taking refuge on death row. In the Mahayana Mahapari Paramita, pa- Paranirvana Sutra, excuse me, Mahaparinirvana Sutra. Ananda, who was the Buddha's cousin and attendant, often stands out as a voice filled with empathy, emotion, and heart. As the story of the Buddha's dying unfolds, Ananda was so distressed at the impending death of his teacher, and understandably so. A few months before his death, the Buddha experienced a serious illness. It was something of a precursor to the illness that actually killed him. And in this, the Buddha realized he needed to address his community before he died. Here's what the sutra says. Then it occurred to the blessed one It would not be fitting if I came to my final passing away without addressing those who attended on me, without taking leave of the community of bhikkhus. Then let me suppress this illness by strength of will, resolve to maintain the life process and live on. And the Blessed One suppressed the illness by strength of will, resolved to maintain the life process and lived on. So it came about that the Blessed One's illness was allayed. Then the Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One, respectfully greeted him. And sitting down at one side, he spoke to the Blessed One saying, Fortunate is for me, O Lord, to see the Blessed One at ease again. Fortunate is it for me, O Lord, to see the Blessed One recovered. For truly, Lord, when I saw the Blessed One's sickness, It was as though my own body became weak as a creeper. Everything around became dim to me and my senses failed me. Yet Lord, I still had some little comfort in this thought that the blessed one would not come to his final passing away until he had given some last instructions respecting the community of bhikkhus. I just love the, the presence of Ananda in, in these teachings. He speaks for so many of us in these ways. So the Buddha basically responds by saying, I already taught you everything. I haven't held anything back. You already have the teachings and you don't need to depend on me personally. He says, Now I am frail Ananda, old, aged, far gone in years. This is my 80th year, and my life is spent. Even as an old cart, Ananda is held together with much difficulty. So the body of the Tathagata is kept going only with supports. Therefore, Ananda, be islands unto yourselves, refuges unto yourselves, seeking no external refuge, with the Dhamma as your island, the Dhamma as your refuge, seeking no other refuge. And how, Ananda, is a bhikkhu, an island unto himself, a refuge unto himself, seeking no external refuge, with the Dhamma as his island, the Dhamma as his refuge, seeking no other refuge. When he dwells, contemplating the body in the body, earnestly, clearly comprehending and mindfully, after having overcome desire and sorrow in regard to the world. When he dwells, contemplating feelings and feelings, the mind and the mind, and mental objects and mental objects, earnestly, clearly comprehending, and mindfully, after having overcome desire and sorrow in regard to the world, then truly he is an island unto himself, a refuge unto himself, seeking no external refuge, having the Dhamma as his island, the Dhamma as his refuge, seeking no other refuge. You may recognize this, these words as an echo of the Satipatthana Sutra, the instructions found in the four foundations of mindfulness. Contemplating the body in the body includes the practices of mindful awareness of sensation, the practices of breath, the elements, contemplations on the death of the body, Many of the things that we've been practicing already in these past few days. The Buddha encourages his disciples to take refuge in the Dharma, to seek no external refuge, just this. Refuge in these very practices, to be islands and refuges unto themselves. In Dai Izenji's vow for awakening, we chant, not to seek the truth outside of ourselves. And in the Song of Zazen, this very body is the body of Buddha. But what do we actually take refuge in? It's so easy to become confused How often do we take refuge in our smartphone? Whenever there's an awkward social moment, a moment of waiting, or God forbid, a moment of not knowing something. Or, for example, when I was at Tassajara earlier this year for the Wildland Firefighter Retreat, as the firefighters were helping each other unpack luggage upon our arrival, I heard one of them say, as he was hefting something out of the car, probably my huge suitcase, we pack our insecurities. Now these are people that have to carry a 40 pound pack and hook it up and down a bunch of hills and then go dig trenches, so packing is one of their superpowers. We pack our insecurities. That echoed in my mind all week, and it continues to. Though in my defense, I did have to pack a bunch of supplies from our mala bracelet-making workshop, so a lot of it was beads. (laughs) (laughs) I find my packing insecurities boil down to the fixed belief I should always be comfortable. or even just picking out what jacket to wear in the Pacific Northwest. The fleece, the raincoat, the puffy, the sweater, the vest, all of the above. What if I'm uncomfortable? Like the vast pile of stuff we may have accumulated or that has flowed through our lives. The pile of identities we have accumulated or struggle to keep. Is this what we are taking refuge in? How do we take refuge in the truth of this moment? In the Dharma. How do we welcome everything and push away nothing? Here we practice bringing awareness to experience, being open to and accepting our experience. Not identifying with or reifying our thoughts, not believing our thoughts. It's one thing to have thoughts. Don't beat yourself too much up too much for that. But it's another thing to believe them. That's a whole other level. So how do we shift this pattern? First, we just need to recognize our mind state, to recognize our patterns. When we just sit here and attend to the breath, our patterns reveal themselves, don't they? Patterns may reveal themselves as craving or aversion or checking out. Our patterns might be patterns of, and habits of behavior, but those behaviors may not be available here in the Sashin setting. So we really can feel or notice our cravings for them. Our habits of mind are just more visible in this schedule, in this practice. So in this way our patterns climb out of hiding. They're visible in a way that they're not when our mind is cloudy with activity. There's no need to freak out about this, though it is kind of horrifying at the beginning of our practice to lift up the rug and see what's under there. But then, when we've been practicing for a while, maybe even for a really long time. We're perhaps even more horrified that it's somehow not immaculately clean. But we don't say, but I cleaned my house last month. There must be something wrong with me. It's just how it is. So this recognition goes hand in hand with allowing or simply acceptance. It's one thing to recognize and be horrified or critical or judgmental. And it's another thing to recognize with acceptance. Not pushing away, not grasping, just allowing. Whatever it is, it's already here anyway. I'd like to read from Frank Ostaseski's Five Invitations. Welcome everything. Push away nothing is not just about learning to welcome changing conditions or moving beyond our preferences. It is about accepting life as is. My daughter Gina and I like to shop in consignment stores for vintage clothing. There are great finds in such shops, a silk paisley scarf, a retro leather jacket, sequined heels. While Gina tries on outfits, I peruse the racks for the next cool item. Many of the clothes have a small stain, a missing button, or a slight tear in the fabric. I noticed in one store all of the clothes carried a cardboard tag with the price and the disclaimer, as is. I like these tags. I think we should hang them on ourselves and each other like Christmas tree ornaments. What a beautiful gift to accept ourselves, others, and our circumstances, as is with all the beauty, imperfections, and challenges that make up this very human life of ours. To welcome everything and push away nothing is an invitation to discover a deeper dimension of our humanity, to tap into something beyond our habitual selves. We can gain access to some part of us that includes, but is not driven by, our reactivity. The only thing our personalities have to work with is their own history. But if all we have to meet the current situation with is our habitual response, then we are bound to keep getting the same results. We generally identify ourselves with the contents of our awareness, with our opinions, memories, desires, aversions, self-concepts, and other mental and emotional fixations. However, in welcoming everything, we allow our identities to rest in awareness itself. I just want to repeat that one. We generally identify ourselves with the contents of our awareness. However, in welcoming everything, we allow our identities to rest in awareness itself. Awareness offers a completely different vantage point that doesn't need to push anything away. It isn't separate from anything else. It is by definition open, receptive, and responsive. When we engage that aspect of our being, an open and unbiased awareness allows us to see through the obstacles that are clouding our view. Awareness gives us the possibility to know and understand. And this means we have the possibility to find happiness and freedom. Welcome everything. Push away nothing is neither a foolish nor an idealistic invitation. On the contrary, it is eminently practical. Accepting life as is means that we make peace with things as they are rather than trying to force them to be the way we want them to be and getting frustrated that we can't. Instead of spinning a story that we then try to live into, we open to the way things are and accept that we are completely human. So what are your patterns? is the content of your greatest hits. What have you been able to notice in these days together? This is not the bad news, this is the necessary news. We have to see what we're doing, recognize it, accept it, inquire into it before we can even begin to learn some new dance moves. Our patterns usually involve some fixed ideas. As we sit and look right here and with practice, we can see how they contribute to suffering. This believing our thoughts, wanting something else, not wanting our experience. Our fixed ideas might be judgments about ourselves, about others. We want to be right. We want to be good. We want to be safe or blameless. We want to be comfortable. We want to be unencumbered by thoughts. We want things to be simple. Sometimes black and white thinking brings us to a degree of comfort when we are experiencing the groundlessness of reality. We have our stories about other people. We have frozen them in time, like those prehistoric mosquitoes frozen in amber. We are limiting them and us with these beliefs like, that's just how I am, or I am right, they are wrong, or I am failing, I am worthless, I am undeserving, or there are good guys and bad guys and I know who they are. Welcome everything, push away nothing, means answering the door when impermanence is knocking and letting the wind blow through. Everything is moving and changing all the time. Can we recognize our habits of mind, the patterns that we have certainly inherited from beginningless generations or lifetimes of ignorance? In this way, it's not even personal. but it is our responsibility to take care of our mind state because this is what informs our thoughts, our feelings, our words, our actions. So how do we even begin to take care of this? How do we let go of our fixed ideas? Korean Zen master, Dai Hong, she's a powerful teacher, deceased, but uh, has a few books of her teachings. You can really hear her powerful voice in them. This is from her book, no river to cross and trust and let go of everything she says. Letting go means letting go of not only distressing and unpleasant things but also every kind of fixed idea. We carry around so many fixed ideas such as you and I and good and bad. You made all these fixed ideas, and as long as you cling to them, it's impossible for you to become one with your true nature. The worst prison in the world is the prison of thought. The most difficult wall in the world to overcome is the wall of fixed ideas. From a certain perspective, Spiritual practice means freeing yourself from such prisons of thought. Thus, if you keep thinking, I'm just an unenlightened being, then because of that thought, you cannot play any role other than that of an unenlightened being. Be very aware of the great difference a single thought can make. Don't make a big deal out about other people's level of spiritual development. If you discriminate between higher and lower, you will not be able to make progress in your own practice. Even though you truly know, do not give rise to the thought that you know. Even though you may be higher, do not think that you are higher. Even though someone else may be ignorant, you should not let yourself be caught by thoughts like that. From the present viewpoint, something may clearly seem right or wrong. However, From the combined viewpoint of past, present, and future, things cannot so easily be called right or wrong. You can roll a barrel only when you are outside of the barrel. When you are caught by fixed ideas, it is as if you are trapped inside of a barrel, so you cannot freely use your mind. If you escape from your fixed ideas, you will see that All of the thoughts and perspectives that you considered so precious are utterly ridiculous. Mind is formless and can freely go anywhere in the universe. So if you give rise to thoughts in a wise and all-embracing manner, you can escape from the barrel, from bondage, and from the prison that has no bars. How can you freely use your mind unless you first step outside of your own fixed ideas? Fixed ideas are like a wisp of cloud or smoke, but nonetheless people find themselves blocked or captured by these. You would laugh if you saw someone tripped by a cloud or if someone claimed that they were imprisoned by the air. But in fact, people are endlessly being trapped by things no more substantial than air or clouds. They make a wall with their mind and then it imprisons them. Inherently, there is no wall or anything to trip over. These things are mirages they've created from the thoughts they gave rise to. Do not insist upon your own fixed ideas. Your persistence is your own narrow mind. If your mind is broad, it can easily embrace the entire world. However, if your mind is narrow, even a needle cannot enter. You have to keep letting go of your stubbornness and always be deeply respectful of all the life and things. This is returning to and relying upon the Buddha Dharma. This is also how to become a free person. Always be humble, be humble. The fragrance of your broad and generous mind will warm others' hearts. Warming others' hearts with our practice. We warm others' hearts with our own habits of warmth towards ourselves and others. And we can cultivate this broad, inclusive, accepting mind. This is how we take responsibility for our life. We can atone, we can acknowledge. The past is gone, but we can identify the causes and conditions that contributed to whatever happened and resolve to shift the pattern. We take responsibility for our mind and its habits, the precursor to our words and deeds. our minds work. The more we do a thing, the more we can do that thing. If we practice negativity and complaining, we get really good at that. It's close to hand when things get uncomfortable. If we practice recognizing when we are caught allowing the experience, inquiring into it with kindness, and not freezing ourselves or others into some permanent shape, we are that much closer to cultivating a warm heart that can arise even in extremely difficult circumstances. To close, I'd like to share some excerpts from a book called The Buddhist on Death Row. It's about a man named Jarvis Masters. You may have heard of him. He's friends with all kinds of Buddhist luminaries now, but he sure did not start out that way. So I'll read the synopsis of his life here from the, just from the book jacket, it goes, much more deeply into his early life. Jarvis J. Masters' early life was a horror story whose outline we know too well. Born in Long Beach, California, Masters grew up in a house filled with crack, alcohol, physical abuse, and men who paid his mother for sex. He and his siblings were split up and sent to foster care when he was five, and he progressed quickly to juvenile detention, car theft, armed robbery, and ultimately San Quentin State Prison. While in prison, he was set up for the murder of a guard and convicted, which landed him on death row, where he's been since 1990. At the time of his murder trial, he was held in solitary confinement, torn by rage and anxiety, felled by headaches, seizures, and panic attacks. A criminal investigator repeatedly offered to teach him breathing exercises, which he repeatedly refused until desperation moved him to ask her how to do, quote, that meditation shit. So this criminal investigator was, her job was to um, try to humanize him by gathering his life story and communicating it to the judge that was um, sentencing him. And in her efforts to try to get him to tell her anything about his life and childhood, he refused to speak to her And I was struck in this book at one point, um, her name's Melody, that she behaved really professionally and and politely with him. And there was one day that she went there to interview him and he was sullen and silent and refused to talk to her. And she had just been in a, um, a climbing accident and injured her Achilles tendon and was in pain. And she yelled at him when he refused to talk to her. She said, do you think this is a joke? They want to kill you. And she apologized and said, I'm sorry, I'm in pain. And I didn't mean to have that outburst. And then with that just flash of vulnerability, he stepped towards her a little bit also. She told him about the uh, meditation practice she had been doing, which for her had not only been very comforting, but also had really awakened a lot of her own trauma memories. And she was really dealing with that and told him some of of her life story. And this is how he began to open up to her and, and even how his story was ever begun to be told. So that's how it began. So the author of this book even admits to some apprehension initially about whether he was being scammed or conned by somebody in the prison. (laughs) He interviewed a lot of people who had come to know Jarvis over the years, including a guard uh, there who credited Jarvis with saving him from killing himself as a result of Jarvis's willingness to listen and help turn the guard's mind in a different direction, using many of the skills that Jarvis had learned and used for himself. So in any case, Jarvis has been transformed by his practice on death row. So I just wanna share some of his story as an example of welcoming everything and pushing away nothing and taking refuge in the Dharma. So I'm starting this after he had been sentenced to death for conspiring in the murder of a prison guard. He came back to the prison from court, and the guards were cheering because of this sentence. And that night, uh, they made him sign a paper. He had to sign a paper with the execution decree on it. The next morning, breakfast was delivered as usual, and the day progressed as if nothing had changed. Also as usual, the mail was delivered in the evening. Jarvis examined a large envelope from someone named Lisa Leghorn, who in a note explained that she was an assistant and interpreter to Chagdud Tulku Rinpoche, the Buddhist lama Jarvis had written to months before, and this is who the. the investigator had given him just a pamphlet from from that teacher and he wrote to that teacher asking for the teachings. Leghorn wrote that Rinpoche was glad that Jarvis had reached out to him and she referred to a small book in the package entitled Life in Relation to Death, which contained a transcript of a talk by the Lama. Read it, she said, see if it speaks to you. Jarvis picked the book up and was instantly transfixed. On the first page, the Lama described death as a subject people often ignore or think about frivolously as if it were no big deal. Then the author wrote, this is a nice story until one is dying. Then experience and theory differ, he continued. Then one is powerless and everything familiar is lost. One is overwhelmed by a great turbulence of fear, disorientation, and confusion. For this reason, it is essential to prepare well and advance for the moment when the mind and body separate. Jarvis closed the book and breathed deeply. A familiar choking emotion welled up in him, anguish, but he read on. The teacher said that all people should prepare for death and in the booklet he outlined various approaches for doing that. Jarvis read through them quickly until he got to one that made him shudder. People should ask themselves two questions every night before bed. If I die tonight in my sleep, what have I done with my life? Have I been of benefit or have I caused harm? Jarvis needed no time to ponder his answer. He knew that he'd benefited no one and he'd caused immeasurable harm. He read all night. Dawn was breaking as he turned the final page, but he was wide awake. He didn't believe in omens, but he reeled at the thought that during his first day on death row, the mail had brought him a guide to dying. So he wrote back to the Rinpoche. Prison mail was slow, and it took a month for him to hear back from the Lama, who said he would understood Jarvis's confusion and fear, but assured him that he was fortunate. His situation was a gift. You can use your circumstances for your betterment and to benefit others, he said. The thought appalled Jarvis. Being on death row was no gift. The Lama wrote that all people have been sentenced to death, In that way, Jarvis wasn't unique. That idea angered Jarvis, too. Yes, he thought everyone's going to die, but not everyone is living 100 yards from the site of their execution. We all live in a prison, and we all hold the key, the Rinpoche wrote. More patronizing bullshit, Jarvis thought. You do not live in a prison. I live in a prison. You may have a key, but the keys to my cell are hanging off my jailer's belts. Yeah. Jarvis's anger diminished when the Lama offered concrete, concrete instructions. Stick with meditation because it allows us to gain insight into our own mind and its projections. Fear is in your mind. Regret is in your mind. That advice recalled Melody's teacher's description of fear as just a thought which had helped him in the past. The key, the teacher said, was practice. Jarvis should meditate at least twice a day, even when it was difficult. He said he should allow himself to feel doubt, confusion, anger, and fear. It's normal for you to feel that way. Finally, the Lama said, if you need help, we're here for you. You are like family now, a new family. When Jarvis read that word, the last remnants of anger melted away. and the Rinpoche visited him. Uh, Important to note that the Rinpoche, this Rinpoche fled Tibet the same time as the Dalai Lama and had lost many family members um, and had endured torture and deprivation and told Jarvis that the group he fled with survived by study, prayer, and meditation. They talked for an hour and then a guard announced that visiting time was over. The Lama spoke again. You may not understand now, but it is your karma to be here, he said. I said you are fortunate. As hard as it is to accept, this is where you have to be now. You may not see it, but you are fortunate to be in a place where you can know humanity's suffering and learn to see the perfection of all beings and yourself. Learn to see their perfection. As the guard unlocked the door, Lisa spoke again. She's the translator. Rinpoche reminds you to meditate every day. In your situation, it will help you more than anything else. So as he continued, he decided to take refuge and they had a refuge ceremony, an empowerment ceremony, which In this tradition, there's lots of full prostration vows, but they couldn't do that. He couldn't bring in any of the holy implements to to do the ceremony. They basically had the ceremony with the Lama in kind of like a phone booth basically for visitation. But after that uh, taking refuge, Jarvis was continuing and deepening his practice. And so here he is in talking to his translator, Lisa, the, the Rinpoche's translator, So Jarvis says, that's something I just don't get. Maybe he, the Rinpoche, maybe he's trying to make me feel better about where I am, but how can he believe San Quentin is a gift? Tell me, Jarvis, Lisa responded. What would your life have been like if you'd never been sent to death row, never been charged with the murder? Think about it, what would have happened? Jarvis was quiet a moment as he pictured that alternate path. Finally, he responded, There's no doubt what would have happened. I would have stayed on the course I'd always been on. Violence. That's who I was. Lisa had once likened his cell in San Quentin to a monk's cell in a state-sponsored retreat. (laughs) She was joking, but he reflected on it again now. It's true, he said. It's been a place to contemplate and study to sit with all these new ideas and turn them around in my head and practice integrating them into my life. I never would have done any of that. I wouldn't have looked at my past, that scary shit. I'd still be running from it. Then he realized something even more startling. You know, he said, the truth is the sentence saved my life. I'd be dead, literally dead. And he goes through to recount just how violent he was and how it would have gone, all the things he probably would have encountered. He envisioned it. Yeah, I would have been in a body bag or put someone in one. Finally, even if I survived that, he saw it clearly. I would have been the same person I was before, spiritually dead. That last thought shook him up. He continued. So yeah, in that way, the death penalty saved my life and gave me my life. I guess that's what Rinpoche meant when he said, I'm fortunate. Everything changed because of that charge. He had another thought. I never would have meditated. Never would have learned about Buddhism. Never, never, never would have been with the guards. Oh, I'm, sorry. Never, I'm sorry, never would have been interested Never would have met Rinpoche. Jarvis thought back to the most mystifying, extraordinary part of the day he became a Buddhist. The morning of the empowerment ceremony, when the guards took him from his cell. He recounted it to Lisa. So they were walking me down and it felt as if they were talking to me, something other than this, or it felt like they were taking me to something other than the ceremony. It felt like they were taking me to be executed. That's what I felt. The cop asked if I was ready and I knew, I knew I was. I was ready to die. Now what was that? I think I understand now. The person I'd been was ready to die and did die that day. My old self died. The person who was desensitized, numb, dead. He looked upward and from that death, it's like I became someone new. I'm becoming. Someone new. Everything is changing. Who we think we are is anything but fixed. For Jarvis Masters, a death sentence that could kill him, had given him his life. Like Hung Sunim said, the worst prison in the world is the prison of thought. The most difficult wall in the world to overcome is the wall of fixed belief. This includes the belief that we are not subject to death. So please keep doing the, this person could die tonight practice including this person, as you breathe your breaths throughout the day that it may be your last. I certainly am happy to be spending potentially my last day with all of you. We are all in this together. Thank you for supporting each other as we go deeper into the practice Please continue to be diligent and kind, and just do your best, thank you.